Father, we praise Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. If you do not have a Bible, there are cell phones with these things called applications on them. You can download one of those for free. But for the morning, you can just pull a black Bible from the pew in front of you and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. As most of you know, I did not grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in a Christian home with a Christian family, and I was radically saved at the age of 18. As soon as I got saved, I began to preach the gospel to anyone and to everyone that would listen, or that wouldn't listen. It didn't matter. I would preach the gospel to a salt shaker on the table if I could, and I did. Immediately after having been saved by Jesus, I sort of intrinsically knew that there was something really important about the Bible. Nobody told me that the Bible was God's inspired and errant and infallible word for me and that it was useful for all good things in my life. I just knew if I was going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this book is really, really important. And so I took up my Bible and I read. And I had no idea what I was reading. It was incredibly difficult to understand. Unlike so many people who came to Christ later in life, I didn't even have a rudimentary understanding of Scripture. Because I didn't grow up in going to church or going to Christian schools or going to a youth group as a teenager, I didn't even know who Abraham was. One of my favorite stories to tell after I got saved was how a very kind gentleman tried to help me understand more about the Bible, and he told me that Jesus was a Jew. And I, I stopped him, I interrupted him, and I said, you know, Jesus was a Christian. Then I told myself not to listen to anything else that this guy had to say, because he obviously didn't know very much. But slowly, with time and effort, 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 help from others, and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, I began to understand the things that I was reading in God's Word. But whenever I would come to something that I couldn't understand, I would just pass it over. So what that means is that the book of Leviticus is getting passed over. Deuteronomy, anything from the Pentateuch aside from Genesis, getting passed over. When I would come to passages in the New Testament that I didn't understand or I couldn't see the importance of, I would pass them over. Genealogies, getting passed over. Christ teaching on eating flesh and drinking blood, passing it over. The text that we're going to read and study today, passing it over. I didn't know what to make of it. Today's passage deals with visitations from dead saints the Shekinah glory of God. Two different types of typological fulfillment. That's a mouthful. And more. Are you scared yet? Well, you shouldn't be. God's Word is complex. And that's good. God knows, like a good coach, that sometimes there's more to the process of teaching than mere communication of information. Sometimes it's good when he makes us sweat and work for something. It builds character in us. And God is kind. 
he does not delight to see us remain in ignorance, even if sometimes he makes us work for it a little bit. Remember, a Bible that you could fully understand would be less than you. But thankfully, you don't have to wrestle through this text alone. You see, I've been wrestling with this text all week for your benefit. But now I need you to focus and commit to pursuing truth by listening as we walk through this text together in our sermon today. Sound good? All right. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. They heard I was about to light this pulpit on fire with this sermon. Hey. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, be with us this morning as we... Search your scriptures for your truth that we might be built up into the image of your Son. Amen. Mark begins this next portion of his gospel by telling the readers exactly how many days have passed since the last time Jesus was teaching them about suffering. Now, Mark is not a detail-oriented guy. Everything in the book of Mark is fast-paced. If it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus being the Son of God, Mark feels like he doesn't really have to talk about it or include it in his writing. Therefore, whenever Mark does include a detail, the reader, you and me, should pay special attention to that detail and ask the question, why? Why, Mark, did you put this detail here? The detail that we see today is six days. And I think the reason why Mark included that detail here is so that it would be clear in the mind of the reader that what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration took place directly after the teaching about the suffering of the Messiah. He wants these two events to be connected in your mind. He doesn't want you to wonder how long. It could have been a couple weeks. It could have been a couple months. No, he wants you to know it was exactly six days afterwards. Why? Well, I think it's because Jesus is on his way to die. If you remember from Mark chapter 8, Peter's confession of Jesus in Mark 8 
is like the turning point in the Gospel of Mark. And from here on out, Jesus is on his way to die. He is on a beeline to suffering. It's all downhill, or going to Jerusalem. It's all uphill from here for Jesus. It's as if in his kindness, Jesus gives the disciples a foretaste of his resurrection glory. As my brother Grant Miller said, it's as if Jesus is telling the disciples, things are about to get real bad. I'm giving you a little taste of what will come after things are bad so that you know it's going to be okay. So Jesus reveals a tiny fragment of his glory to the disciples. But he doesn't reveal it to all the disciples. He only reveals it to three. The text tells us that Jesus only took Peter, James, and John with him up to the mountain. That's what verse 2 says. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to the mountain. These three are Jesus' inner circle. They will be the pillars of the New Testament church in ways that even the other 12 disciples are not or were not. And here what they get is the privilege of nothing less than observing the miraculous. Jesus is standing with Moses and Elijah, the two greatest characters in the entire Old Testament besides God himself, in whom all of the prophet and the law, the law and the prophets are represented. But before Moses and Elijah show up on the scene, the disciples see that Jesus has transformed. A literal metamorphosis has taken place. It's not like Jesus grew an extra eyeball or became ten feet tall. He's still the same Jesus. You would have looked at him and saw the same man that you might have seen an hour before. Except for now, the text tells us that he's illuminated. That he's white with radiant purity. He and his clothes become whiter than white. And it's as if particles of light are dancing off of him and into the atmosphere. Let's read verses 2 and 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Well, what's happening here? What's going on? It's something very similar to what happened to Moses. Do you remember the story of Moses? How he went up on the mountain to receive the law of God? And how there he encountered the tiniest fraction of God's glory? Moses was speaking to God and he said, I pray, show me your glory. And God did show it to him. Kind of. You see, Moses, as a sinful man, could not see the fullness of the glory of a holy God, lest it destroy him. Like looking at a solar eclipse, except for infinitely worse. So God, using anthropomorphic language, which means just a language that allows him to communicate on our level, he says, I'll show you my backside. And it's enough. After Moses sees the backside of God, his face shines. It is radiant, whiter than anyone on earth could bleach it. And so he has to wear a veil over his face as he goes down and communicates with the Israelites to protect the people from the luminescence of God's glory that still resides with him. 
But what we see today is very different than what we saw with Moses. Because what we see today is greater than what we saw with Moses. You see, in today's text, Jesus isn't beholding anything. The radiance is coming out of Jesus himself. Do you remember the story of the burning bush from Exodus? The thing that was significant about that was that the bush itself was not consumed. And it showed that God needs no external source for fuel. He is light. He is combustion. In the same way, Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, doesn't need to behold God in order to illuminate God's glory because He is God. It comes from within Him. The divine person of the second member of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, has been walking around on earth now for 30-some-odd years enwrapped in flesh, protecting all of the sinful men that He's been moving amongst from the destruction of observing His glory. You remember last week in Isaiah 53, we read about this Messiah. And it said that there was nothing about him that would make anyone think that he was like God or that he was God. There was nothing special about the way that Jesus looked. But in today's account, Jesus peels back the tiniest corner of his humanity and allows the radiance of his eternal glory to shine through. What are we to think of this? Well, maybe we should find out by asking Peter what he thinks of it, if he has an opinion. You know that old introvert Peter, slow to speak, quick to listen. Maybe he has an opinion. Let's read of what he has to say in verses 5 and 6. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Ready, fire, aim. That's Peter. Here we see Peter doing what he always does. He's acting without thinking. He's being governed by his emotions. He has no filter. That's what the text says, right? It says that Peter offers to erect these three tents. But then it says that Peter didn't really know what to say because he was afraid. Now remember that Peter is the one who's communicating the contents of this gospel to Mark. I can imagine myself sitting in the room, you know, observing Peter telling Mark about the Mount of Transfiguration and what happened there. And so there was Jesus, and he was white, whiter than anything, whiter than anybody could ever bleach anything. And then Moses and Elijah. And then I was like, Lord, let me build you some tents. And Mark kind of puts the quill down. Tents? Yes, tents. And Mark kind of gives one of these faces. And then Peter, recognizing kind of the foolishness of how it all sounds and maybe Mark's response, says, I didn't know what to do, man. I was terrified. And we all recognize, yes, we would have been terrified too. This little segment alone is worthy of like an hour-long exposition of application on its own. The value of not being governed by our impulses and our fears and our emotions Peter could have done a hundred different things other than offering to build a tent. 
He could have just sat there in silence and observed one of the most miraculous things that he had ever seen. He could have started off by asking Jesus questions if he was going to approach them. Do you need anything? What can I do for you? How can I help? Instead, you know, as a matter of fact, he could have worshipped. He could have just fallen down and worshipped. But instead, he says, I'm going to build tents. Now, Peter's reaction isn't entirely ridiculous. We're, we're pretty hard on Peter sometimes. Let's, 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 let's give Peter a little bit of ground here. It's not entirely ridiculous. You see, Peter realized that something divine was happening. He realized that something heavenly was taking place. And as a good little Jewish boy, he would have heard about he heavenly visitations of old, things that nowadays theologians call theophanies. He would have heard about these heavenly visitations that now we understand in many cases to have been Christ coming to his people before there even was a Christ to come. And he remembers from Abraham and Daniel, the natural response was to offer food and offer shelter for these divine beings, whoever they might have been. He was offering to tabernacle them. See, tabernacling is a theme that's very prominent in our Bibles. If we studied them more, we'd recognize that. But anytime a divine visitor would come, the offer to tabernacle them, literally tabernacle them, was made. And it's just... Let me put up a tent. That's what it means to tabernacle. Let me put up a tent for you. But long before any of this, there was no need for a tabernacle. You see, God created the world and He created it all good. And when He created that world, He created a garden where He was going to put the man that He created and the woman. And that happened. And then God walked with man in the garden, in peace. God and man dwelling with one another. But then sin entered in the world, and God cast man out of his presence. A couple of centuries pass, and God makes a people for himself. And he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And he leads them out of slavery. And he promises to be with them, to be present. And sure enough, as they leave Egypt and they travel to the promised land, God is with them. He's with this massive pillar of cloud, which is shade by day, and fire, which is light by night. And God's presence is dwelling with God's people as they head on the move. Later, God commands Moses to have the Israelites build a tabernacle, which is a big tent where the Ark of the Covenant goes inside of. And it's like this temple on wheels. And so God's people are carrying around God's presence with them wherever they go. The first thing that they do when they get to the promised land is secure a spot for the tabernacle, for the tent, God with us. At one point on the journey, God was so angry with the Israelites that he threatened to destroy them. Moses went to God and said, please don't destroy them. And God said, okay, I'm not going to destroy them, but I'm just going to send you guys on ahead and I'm not going to go with you. And Moses said, may it never be, Lord. Do not let us go up there without you. Your presence with us is what distinguishes us from all the peoples of the earth. And so God's, people, God's presence was tabernacling with God's people for many centuries. Later, Solomon would build a temple. And in this temple, God's presence was pleased to dwell with God's people. We read this from 1 Kings chapter 8. 
And when the priest came out of the holy place, this is, they've brought the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle into the temple. That's kind of like this ceremonial transfer. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So we see God's presence is in God's temple, living with God's people. But then God's enemies came and destroyed that temple. Later on, there would be another temple rebuilt. But when Jesus Christ shows up on the scene, the true and final tabernacle has arrived. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You see, the reason why it's foolish for Peter to offer to build a tent for the Lord Jesus is not because a tent is out of the question. It's because Jesus is the tent. He doesn't need a tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. But Peter didn't know that. And in the Mount of Transfiguration, as we see the glory of Jesus Christ, it's as if Jesus is lifting up just the tiniest fraction of a millimeter of the flap of the tent to let the tiniest fraction of His glory shine through. Peter does not know that God has been tabernacling with them this entire time. Like we said the last two, week, last two weeks, Peter sees, but he doesn't see. He's in this gradual process of coming to understand the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. Making sense of the nature of Jesus Christ. Another way that Peter goes wrong here is that he offers these three men tents as if these three men are equals. I'm sure that in Peter's mind, he was really paying his rabbi a great compliment by putting him on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. Moses was the greatest leader of God's people to date the deliverer of the Israelites, the recipient of the law of God. God's word says that he was the most humble man to ever live. And Elijah is the prophet of all prophets, the most quoted prophet in all of the New Testament. One pastor has said that this experience for Peter must have been like sitting with a president, only to have Abraham Lincoln and George Washington appear in the same room to kind of observe them all having a conversation. He must have been thinking, wow, what an honor, you know. My rabbi, right there, same level as Moses and Elijah. My rabbi with the Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant of the Old Testament. That's the extent of my basketball illustrations. And again, here we see that Peter still doesn't see. Not all the way. Peter knows that Jesus is the Messiah, and he knows that that is something really important. But he hasn't really seen the fullness of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the greater Moses. Who came to rescue God's people. He's the greater Elijah who came to communicate the truth of God to God's people. Jesus is greater 
than what these men represent. Moses represents the law of God, and Elijah represents all the prophets. As Jesus heads towards the mountain where he will die, he stops and reveals that his death will fulfill everything that Moses and Elijah were waiting for. Everything that they were looking forward to, everything that they were pointing to. Moses and Elijah are not greater than Jesus or on the same level as Jesus. Moses and Elijah were waiting for Jesus. And then God, in the midst of this confusion, as He always does in His kindness, reveals Himself. He comes and He communicates. The text says that the cloud covers the mountain, which if you remember from 1 Kings 8 and from other places in the Old Testament is typical of when God communicates. A cloud covers the mountain. And he calls out, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's always hard reading the part of God in something like this. You can never quite get the baritone in your voice that you think it deserves. You see, Jesus is not just another prophet. As Peter is sitting there observing Jesus with these two mighty men of God, that's probably what he's thinking. But then God comes onto the scene and verbally communicates to him, that, he is not, that Jesus is not just another prophet. That He is in fact the very Son of God. And because of that, He must be listened to. And not just in the way that you would listen to a prophet. I mean, prophets were communicating the things of God, so in one sense they should be listened to. But everyone knows that an ambassador who carries the message of the king although in theory should carry the, me- the weight of the, the king, an ambassador communicating something to you does not cause you to heed and listen to him in the same way as the king himself communicating to you. In the same way, Jesus is not merely communicating God's word. He is God, and he is communicating God's word. Friends, our Muslim neighbors claim to listen to Jesus. They say that they honor him. And as a matter of fact, they say that they honor him more than we do by recognizing him as a prophet. But the voice of God in today's account stands in judgment over our Muslim neighbors. It also stands in judgment over half of the city of Decatur that claims to be Christian, that honors the words of Jesus Christ in name only with their lips alone. It's easy to pick on our Muslim neighbors who falsely honor Jesus, but what about our neighbors who claim to be Christian? Who have Bibles that are collecting dust because they haven't been opened in years? Who aren't regularly and faithfully loving the church like Christ loves the church? Who aren't laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel? Decatur, Alabama is a city full of people who honor God, but not in the way that He demands. And such were some of you. Will we honor Jesus by obeying Him? Will we honor Jesus by laying down our lives for Him? Will we honor Jesus and listen to Jesus by taking up our cross and following Him? The command from God to listen here This is important. 
is given to people who would have heard Jesus' voice anyways. So what does that mean? Well, it means that mere exposure to the words of Jesus are not enough. Peter, James, John, they would have continued with Jesus, hearing him all the time. But hearing is not enough. Exposure is not enough. Listening involves active participation, intentionality, paying special attention to the words of Jesus. There are a thousand ways that we can apply this to our lives, but here are just a few. How do you participate on a Sunday morning? Are you just kind of hoping that the words of Jesus that are spoken and preached here will, will be absorbed by you in kind of spiritual osmosis? Do you think that just being here and kind of casually singing and casually praying and kind of halfway paying attention to a sermon is going to work for you? Do you think that that's going to make you more Christ-like? I don't think it will. So let me encourage you to be active in what you do here on a Sunday morning. Be active as we sing the songs that we sing together. We choose songs that are rich in scriptural truth for this reason. When we pray, we really try to have the people who pray here on a Sunday morning communicate the truth of God's Word. We ask them to study God's Word and then to write a prayer based off of God's Word so that they're not just up here rambling but communicating God's truth, which should in turn help you to not just kind of sit there with your eyes closed waiting for Him to say amen, but to actually participate in the prayer. As he prays for other churches, you pray for those other churches. As he prays for the persecuted, you pray for the persecuted. As he prays for the building up of this church, you pay attention to what's being said and you pray that with him. Our brother Michael Wall worked long and hard on his pastoral prayer this week. And it was saturated with wisdom and truth. Did you listen to it? Did you pray it with him, or did you wait for him to finish? Every person who steps up here to pray is not going to be the most dynamic speaker. But we're not looking for dynamism. We're looking for faithfulness. When I preach, even now, do you listen, listen passively, just kind of waiting for the sermon to be over so you can get to Las Vias and get you some cheese dip? I hope I didn't step on anybody's toes who's planning to go to Las Vegas after this. I had no prior knowledge. Are you waiting for me to tell my next little quippy, funny joke? Because that's really what you're, you know, you're here for the stories and the entertainment. Or do you know that God's word is being heralded for your good? Listen, brothers and sisters. Listen as broken vessels leak God's word to you every single week. We do expositional preaching in the life of this church because we know that God's word is what changes God's people. And nobody who stands in this pulpit will ever preach a sermon based on their opinions. Did you know that the Great Commission is just an echo of what we see here on the Mount of Transfiguration? Here God says this. He says, 
listen to my son. And then in Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciples to go out and to preach and to tell the entire world to listen to his voice. He tells the disciples to go out and to tell of everything that they've heard and seen and watched Jesus do. Go out and tell people to obey my words. Tell them to listen to my voice. Why? Because it needs to be listened to. It's the voice of God. As I studied this text, I was tempted to get wrapped around the axle on Moses and Elijah and prophecy fulfillment. Type, any type. But I don't think we should get wrapped around that. I think, I think these three words are the most important part of this text. Listen to him. These are the three most important words of our lives as Christians. Listen to Him. The entirety of our life's mission is bound up in these three words. The entire reason that you are still alive here on this earth, your purpose in life is to communicate these three words. Listen to Jesus. but we can't carry out that call if we ourselves are not listening. Our leaders must be men who are more concerned with rightly hearing and communicating the voice of Jesus Christ than advocating for their own opinions or positions or trying to preserve their own authority and privilege. We as individuals must be striving to listen to Jesus in every area of our lives, not just the comfortable ones, our families should be striving to listen to Jesus Christ and live according to His Word. And how do we listen to the voice of the Son of God? I'm about to pull a Joel Osteen. Y'all ready? Everyone hold up your Bibles. Come on. I know it's corny. Let's do it. Hold them up. It's okay if you have a phone. Hold up your phone. Yep. Uh, thanks on the balcony. Here it is. This is the voice of Jesus. You can put them down. Thank you for obliging me. But you won't ever hear the voice of Jesus Christ if you don't ever open it. Rather than listening to God's voice in God's Word, many people today prefer to watch television, particularly Christians watching TBN and Daystar. One of the recurring themes that you'll find on channels like TBN and Daystar is that of the end times. It seems like every few years another person comes out of the woodworks with another prediction about the end times. The last major prediction fail was from Harold Camping. He was a prominent doomsday prophet and he claimed that the world was going to end on May 21st, 2011. People cashed out their retirement, sold their homes, bought a traveling fleet of RVs to tell everyone that May 21st, 2011, the world was going to end. Mr. Camping thought that he had an intimate and intricate knowledge of Scripture that led him to be able to observe certain signs and predict the day of Jesus' second coming. But did you know that there have been Harold Campings all throughout church history and even before Christ? What he's doing is nothing new. Even before Christ came, 
Amongst the Jews, there were herald campings. People loved to talk about the end times, and it is no different for the Jews. And there were a couple schools of thought. The schools of thought that the disciples very obviously agree with and support in today's text show that they believed with the scribes. Because they say, well, and the scribes say, well, what did the scribes say? They said that Elijah would return before the Messiah to prepare the way for him. The prophet Elijah would return before the Messiah. So as Jesus begins to teach the disciples about himself, and as they begin to grasp what he's revealing, now they're confused. Well, if the Messiah, if Elijah's going to come before the Messiah, here you are, so you say, where's Elijah? I think some of you may even be sitting there in the pews scratching your heads or your chins or whatever you scratch when you're confused. You're trying to remember, did Sean preach about the coming of Elijah? I don't remember that. I've been here most Sundays. Maybe it was a Sunday that I missed. I don't remember anywhere Sean preaching about the coming of Elijah. The scripture that all of this is pulled from is Malachi 4, 4 through 6. Go with me to Malachi real quick. It's the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. Four, four through six. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Destruction. Jesus responds to the disciples' question here by affirming that they're right, which shows that he's actually in agreement with the scribes, which is good of us to note because the scribes are attacking Jesus at every turn and he has no qualms with agreeing with them theologically. And he says this, yes, Elijah will come back. And as a matter of fact, he already has. Again, Sean, I've been here every week, man. I, I haven't heard you. Is there something, did Mark not talk about it? Well, I preached about John the Baptist. Go with me to Matthew eleven fourteen. We'll start in verse 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I could have done a whole bunch of theologically nerdy, intricate stuff to try to show you that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophecy about Elijah. But I, I know that it's probably just easier to show you here from the book of Matthew that Jesus understood John the Baptist to be the fulfillment of Elijah. Well, how does that work? I mean, the two are not the same people. Well, let's go to one more scripture that will help us figure this out. 
Luke 1.17. Luke is right after the book of Mark. After a direct quotation from Malachi, we read this. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see this? Jesus teaches that the prophecy wasn't that Elijah was literally, physically going to come back reincarnate, but rather that someone was going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Someone especially equipped by the Spirit of God to call God's people back to repentance, just like Elijah, with the power of the Spirit of God that anointed Elijah for his work. And that's what John was doing. And so in verse 13 of chapter 9 today, we read this. But I tell you that Elijah has come. Who? John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they please. That is, they killed him. God kept his promise. He did what he said he was going to do. But the promise was misunderstood. And so the Jews couldn't see the promise being kept before their very eyes. If you ever wonder what any of all of this debate about revelation and amillennialism and postmillennialism, premillennialism, all that stuff, this is how it becomes practical. If you misunderstand the promises of God for what's to come, you will be disappointed, and you may, in fact, even miss them when they do come. We, as his children, should make every effort to understand his promises. Or we might end up waiting for something that's never coming, or for someone that has already come. We can and should stand on the promises of God, but we should also make sure that we understand what God is promising us. God will do that which he has promised to do. And if he doesn't, we should probably stop and ask ourselves if we've misunderstood God and his promises, not accuse him of being a promise breaker. But back to this whole conversation. Before Jesus wraps up this conversation by telling the disciples that Elijah had come and that they simply hadn't realized it, Jesus says this in verse 12. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus is saying, if you guys are such scholars of the Scriptures, if you guys know so much about the coming of the Messiah, then how come you didn't know about my suffering? You see, they say it's written in the Scriptures that Elijah must come, but when Jesus tried to tell him last week as we were studying the book of Mark, that the Messiah would have to suffer, they didn't know what he was talking about. They only had Daniel, mighty warrior king, sword slaked in the blood of the enemies of God. They didn't have Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And so now as these disciples ask Jesus this, this theological question that, they, that they're picking up from Scripture, Jesus is rebuking them. He's saying, how is it that you know so much and yet know so little? And the same thing might be asked of us today. How is it that we know so much 
and yet so little. The disciples understood something kind of obscure about the Messiah. But they didn't know probably the most important thing, that he was going to have to suffer in order to bring about salvation. How many of us can say the same thing? I think about young men who come out of seminary who can explain the tiniest intricacies of Trinitarian theology to you, probably in Latin, but who don't know what church discipline is, who have no knowledge of other more basic fundamental things about the Christian life. This could just turn into a repeat of last week's main application point, and I'm kind of okay with that, so let me just say this. Brothers and sisters, make sure that you are studying the fullness of God's Word. That you're studying the full counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. Read good books. Listen to good sermons and podcasts, even if they're not mine. Come on a Wednesday night and come on Sunday morning to be fed by God's Word so that you don't have these kind of gaps in your knowledge so that you, along with these disciples, don't get rebuked by Jesus for majoring on the miners and missing the forest for the trees. Before we close, there's something about this text that we should note. It's kind of a big deal. You see, throughout the entirety of this book so far, Jesus has been telling anyone and everyone to keep silent. They call it the secrecy motif. All throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is just telling everyone, be quiet, don't tell anybody about what I just did, the healing, the preaching. The only person that Jesus up till now hasn't commanded to silence was a Gentile. And Jesus sent him back out as the first missionary. Today in verse 9, we read of Jesus' very last command to silence in the book of Mark. Let's read verse 9 and 10. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Once again, the disciples do not understand what Jesus is teaching them. This time, what they don't understand is when he speaks of his resurrection. I'm not going to hang out on that this morning because it's going to come up again real soon in the book of Mark. It's important for us to see this morning that Jesus tells them for the second time that he will die and be raised. And it is when he is raised that they can begin to talk about all that they have seen and heard, but not before. Remember, the reason that Jesus commands everyone to silence is because he doesn't want to expedite his death. He knows that they have a wrong understanding of what the Messiah is. They're going to try sometimes at times to force him and make him the king, which will surely elicit the wrath of the Jews and of the Herodians and lead to him being prematurely killed. But now that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he's turned the corner to his death, things are changing. And he no longer commands anyone to be silent again. But after Jesus rose, he appeared to the disciples. And when he appeared to them, he did the opposite of asking them to keep silent. He commanded them to speak. Jesus told the disciples to speak of all that they had heard and seen of Jesus, everything that they had learned from his life and ministry. This is what it means to be the witnesses of Jesus. 
They go and they tell the world what they saw. The words that Jesus spoke, the miracles that Jesus performed, the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross on their behalf and on ours. And Christians, this is still our call today. As Michael was reading Matthew 28, 28, 18-20 earlier, he said that this great commission was supposed to go on until the end of the ages. That is when the Spirit is going to be with us all the way until the end. How are we supposed to be Christian witnesses if we weren't there? Well, this is where faith comes into play. God has left us a divine account of what has happened from the eyewitness accounts of the apostles. And by faith, we read and believe these things to be true. We believe that God, the second person of the Trinity, came down in perfect human flesh and lived a a sinless life on our behalf. He was perfectly obedient to God in every way. And he fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of a holy and just God. And then we killed him. And on the cross, he took the wrath of that righteous God on his own shoulders. And he suffered the punishment for sins that we should suffer. And he took the penalties of our sins away from us. And then he was buried. He was raised three days later by the power of the Spirit. And then now, we go out proclaiming this reality any and every opportunity we have. Any chance we get, we tell of what Jesus Christ has done to save us. Do you believe that? If not, why not? Is this whole dead prophets coming back to have a conversation with Jesus who's glowing white... Is that like too much for your modern intellectual mind to wrap its head around? What about the idea that a man lived a perfect life? Seems impossible. What about the fact that he was dead for three days and then was raised back to life and that he ascended up into heaven and that one day he will come back down to earth? Is that too much for you? Do you not have enough faith to believe in such things? I understand. I really do. But let me ask you this. What do you believe in? If you don't believe in that, what do you believe in? Do you believe that you descended from pond scum, which turned into salamanders, which turned into apes, which turned into humans? Do you believe that there was nothing and then nothing acted on nothing and produced something? Do you believe that a lightning bolt struck an inanimate particle billions and billions of years ago and that life came from that? I think Mary Shelley wrote a book about that. Do you believe that all the beauty of this universe is meaningless and that All is the product of accidental forces and that one day your eyes will close and you will be absorbed back into the black abyss of nothingness that is space. 
Do you believe in the mathematical impossibility of Darwinian macroevolution? Do you believe that the baby being held in the arms of his mother has no intrinsic value? I understand that the gospel is hard to grasp. And that's why God must grant us faith to see and to believe. But I don't think that other lesser options are any easier to stomach. A man dying and being dead for three days and then coming back from the grave? Or the black abyss of space, nothing acting on nothing, producing something? If you don't believe in this, you still have to make a faith decision. I just think yours is the wrong one. And I'm willing to stake my soul on it. As a matter of fact, it seems quite obvious to me that the world we live in was designed by someone. And if so, then it makes perfect sense that that someone who designed this world and all of us in it would communicate to us. That he would write himself into the story. And if that someone is able to create an entire universe and fix galaxies in their place. Then a man rising from the dead after three days doesn't seem like much of a stretch. It actually feels like child's play. Who do you believe? There are a million voices calling out to you even this morning clamoring to get you to believe in what they are saying. But this morning I believe in my heart of hearts that the voice of Jesus Christ is calling to you. He's calling you to repent of your sins and to turn away from all the voices of this world and to trust in the only thing that will do your soul eternal good. So repent of your sins. Turn off the voices of the world and look to Christ and believe in Him. There's no cloud here this morning. We're not on a mountain. There's no voice booming from heaven. But He's calling you, nonetheless. Pray with me. We believe, Lord, but at times our faith is weak, and so we ask you to help our unbelief. We ask that you would be our strength, and even in moments of our faithlessness, we pray that you would be faithful to us. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand with me once.